Hey folks, welcome back to the Marvel Bronze Age podcast. I'm Ed, and my um, co-host... Um, oh, sorry. My, my, my co-host, who is with me every episode... <laughs> and I'm Levi. That, that, that's you, Q, co-host. Yay, me! I'm here! Ta-da! All right. Uh, for those that this may be your first episode, uh, we are... We are a spoiler podcast, which I use that word very lightly, because um, the books that we talk about right now are cover dated 1970, so that's, what, 45 years ago? It's a long time. Um, but if you choose to feel that you have been spoiled, uh, here is your warning for that. Every episode, Levi and I will talk about two of the comic books from, in my opinion, the best age of Marvel Comics, the Bronze Age. Oh, I thought you were talking about the 90s. Uh, no. Although I have today been reading some uh, 90s uh, Ghost Rider books, actually. Oh, I bet those are pretty good. Uh, they are just laced with 90s. They're yeah. Just, they're they're yep. just very <laughs> representative. 90s, yep. Um, this the, the, this. Show, however, uh, we the for us the Bronze Age started January 1970, and we'll go approximately to some time in 1986-ish, but that's way down the road. So we have plenty of time to figure out exactly where we're going to end because we're nowhere near that end of it. We're much closer to the beginning of it. Tonight, today, when whenever you listen, <laughs> Iron Man 24, uh, the first volume of Iron Man. And Rawhide Kids 75, and I don't believe this is the first volume of Rawhide Kid, but it, it could be. Um, I couldn't find any indication either way, and this early 70s Marvel cowboy books, a lot of them are reprint, and I wasn't able to track down whether Rawhide Kid was or wasn't, although I will say in this issue of Rawhide Kid, it's all one story, and that story is brand new for this book. Mm. It's not been reprinted. This isn't a reprint, and actually, trying to look it up, it's not been reprinted except in foreign volumes. So in order to get this story, you have to read Rock High Kid 75 because it's never shown up anywhere else in the U.S. Hmm. So we will start off with The Invincible Iron Man. Um, on the cover, we have Iron Man... Madam Mask is pinned, strapped to a table with a uh, what you would suppose is an evil scientist bending over her, telling her as he's pointing towards a minotaur that has just burst through a uh, cavern wall. Yeah. yeah, so apparently they're all in some kind of cave. And the mad scientist is saying, pointing, he is more than Iron Man's match, Madam Mask. He is my son, the minotaur! So... Cue evil laughter. Uh, yes, but I, I can't do evil laughter, so I'll, I'll pass. Wah-ha-ha-ha. Uh, there we go. There we go. Uh, this is brought to us by Archie Goodwin and Johnny Craig on art. Uh, uh, Archie Goodwin, I apologize, is writer. Uh, George Tuska, Tuska was the inker, and Gene Izzo, the letterer. And this is still under the 1970s, still under Stan Lee's reign of the Marvel Universe. And that's R-E-I-G-N, by the way. So we open with a female figure having washed ashore. 
Uh, we have a narration box telling us that this is indeed Madame Mask, formerly known as Whitney Frost, but she was horribly disfigured and has taken on the persona of Madame Mask. Uh, Madame Mask has been in Iron Man comics since issue 19, so that's, what, five issues or so? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, there's there's a shadow that's creeping over Madame Mask, and having you know paid attention to the cover, you can tell that this is the shadow of what should be a Minotaur, but we just see the shadow. The story then cuts to uh, Brian. I, do what? Yep. Story cuts to a um, kind of a flashback, but also a, a current kind of thing. Um, apparently, Madame Mask is suffering from uh, something. Uh, she's not in her right mind. She's hallucinating, but she's hallucinating what has happened up to this point. So we see that she and Iron Man were interacting, and to try to escape him, she jumped into the ocean, but then... He ended up rescuing her and a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent by the name of Jasper Sitwell, who is in love with her, is trying to get her from Iron Man because he has to arrest her. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of this um, hallucinatory flashback, the face of Iron Man, who is carrying her as he is flying her to safety, uh, starts changing into some other creature, forcing her to scream – and then she awakens, and we see that it is the Minotaur, and he is—he's uh, throwing her away from him. I'm—I'm I'm not really sure why. I can't imagine that he has much to fear from her physically. Um, and in the process, as she is being thrown away from him to the ground, her mask comes off, and we see it fly off to the side. The mask is just a gold. A full face covering mask. It looks like a human face just made out of gold. We then uh, move to, well, this actually, this has happened in the past, apparently. So she was flashing back, and her flashing back was a flashback. Mm -hmm. So it was like a nested flashback or a flashback squared or whatever Mm -hmm. mathematicalness you want to apply to it. But now, we are now, and a um, smartly dressed in, in evening uh, robe-type smoking jacket attire mm-hmm. gentleman is looking over Madame Mask's mask. So he has acquired it. Uh, then S.H.I.E.L.D. busts in, grabs the mask, does some testing on it turns over the results of the test and the mask to Jasper Sitwell because whatever part of S.H.I.E.L.D. Jasper is currently working for, and he has been a a Marvel um, character for a little while up to this point, too. He's bounced around books. He's been in uh, Captain America and Iron Man, and every now and then he'll make an appearance in a book whenever S.H.I.E.L.D. is in there because he's a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so the mask is turned over to him because it is in his wheelhouse to investigate the mask. S.H.I.E.L.D. not knowing that Sitwell has a thing for Madame Mask anyways, 
or on top of that. Mm-hmm. So they're they're kind of helping him out uh, to, to to find this woman because she has disappeared from him, and he's he's got this thing about her. I mean, I was thinking that he had a history of like. Um investigating her because of her criminal background, and so they were like, well, we found, you know, this and some evidence, so here, we're turning it over to you. Yes, yeah, the the criminal aspect of Madame Mask, yes. Right. Uh, but I don't know if he, you know, is it because it's just Madame Mask? Is it because she is a quote-unquote supervillain? Is it, you know, uh, mm-hmm. that here that's not explained. Maybe in previous Iron Man books it, it was that's where it started I, I, I don't recall mm-hmm. uh, so um, okay so we, we leave Madame Mask and we leave Jasper Sitwell and we come to Tony Stark finally which of course we should being is that he spoiler okay are you ready guys oh he's, you're not are you he, he's Iron Man so no. it's about time we get to him. But this is not the normal, upbeat, playboy Tony Stark that we're used to. He's very glum and gloomy, so much so that he is sitting at a um, – uh, Levi, what's this wheel called? Um, roulette. Roulette. There we go. He's at a roulette wheel uh, just taking it to task. He's just winning hand over fist, uh, and he tells the attractive – lucky ladies that he has managed to surround himself with to Mm. take the proceeds and be sure that they are dispatched among a list of charities that he left with the manager because he doesn't want any of the money. He doesn't care. Now, to emphasize, excuse me, just how much money that is, one of the ladies says, you've almost broken the bank. Now, talking about the house. Right, right. So if you are to the point where you're almost depleting the house funding or credit, wow. Yes, that would probably be hundreds of millions, do you figure? Yeah, I'm figuring at least. So, And especially especially given this is um, uh, close to or in the uh, – what region of Europe was that again? The, in? Probably the French Riviera. Yeah, I think it was the French Riviera. Uh, Rouge vinct et on mesdames et monsieur and, and monsieur something in French there, but rogue vinct et on. I, I don't even recognize that as being French, but. I have no idea. I'm not French. I'm white Anglo-Saxon. Protestant male Appalachian. Appalachian American. Coal field. Yeah, so that, yep. that's, that's me. Uh, but anyways, Tony is so glum, and this gambling thing just is not taking his mind off of anything, so he just he gets up and leaves. Uh, everyone is talking about it, you know, oh, isn't that Tony Stark? Oh, he's leaving all this money, you know, yada, yada, yada. He goes up to his room. We see that he is bemoaning what has uh, – bemoaning what has befallen. I'm, I'm sorry that I, I did that. I wow. I should pick better words, yeah. He is gloomy about what happened to a friend of his by the name of Janice Cord. Um, she was accidentally killed in one of in, – in Iron Man's most recent battle with the Titanium Man. Uh, he's the dude that usually appears in the big green clunky armor, mm-hmm. uh, and but, he's typically Russian. By the way, um, I'm 
I have no idea how you pronounce it properly, Vingt et Un, is 21 in French. Is it really? Okay. Well, and that makes sense because on the roulette wheel, you've got the red 21 and the black ball here. Yep. So apparently he is calling where the ball has landed and yep. must be what Tony's most recent bet was on since he's mm-hmm. breaking, that, breaking the bank. So um, Tony is upset that someone that he knows, perhaps even though it was just 22 issues ago, we probably talked about this Mm -hmm. uh, in the first volume of the show, but I don't recall uh, a young lady dying. Well, now, didn't, let's see, didn't they reference, like, uh, the last episode we did here, Tragically Told in I Am 22. 22, yeah. That would only be two issues ago. Right. Um, But I I don't know if Iron Man is coming out monthly at this time. Mm, okay. So um, I, I do remember him battling the Titanium Man, you know, early in, in this book, but I don't know if that's something that we have read or if it's something that I read at some point. Uh, but either way, I, I remember his early battles with Titanium Man, but this most recent one doesn't uh, come to mind as anyone having died, which is highly unusual anyways mm-hmm. in comic books of this era. So – he goes up to his room. He's very down in the mouth, and he meets someone in the shadows with Madame Masks on, and he refers to her as not only Madame Mask, but he uses her real name, Whitney, uh, showing that he has th- that Tony Stark has that kind of relationship with her, that he knows both aspects of her. Mm-hmm. The individual then turns on the light, and we see that it's Jasper Sitwell with Madame Masks on with Madame Mask's mask, uh, not on, but he's holding it to his face. And then he apologizes for doing that to Tony, but it's like you you did it on purpose because you were holding the mask up. Mm-hmm. As, so, um, and here he and Tony have a little uh, uh, man-to-man, uh, Jasper, about how he cared for Whitney, and now she's gone, but I, I have – recently been given this mask, so maybe she's not gone, and I am speaking to you because in researching the mask, we found her fingerprints and yours. So why are your fingerprints, Tony Stark, on her mask? Mm -hmm. We then cut to um, a young lady that reminds me very much of the Baroness from G.I. Joe comics. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and an older gentleman standing on a balcony overlooking the ocean from a, a house way up on a uh, land point overlooking the water. I mean, a very it, it must be a very, very nice house just because of where it's located, if nothing else. Right. They have about a 270 to maybe 300 degree view of the ocean from the house. That's how far out on this jetty it is. Um, his name is Dr. Vrylak, and he is talking to this young lady. Let's see if he hasn't given it away yet, but we will find out here in a little bit that this actually is Whitney. Um, yeah, I forget her first name that was on the first page there, but Whitney, Madam Mask, without her mask. Her face is all bandaged. 
He is saying that he can fix that. Frost. Whitney Frost. Yes. Okay. Uh, Dr. Violak can fix that, and so she must be hanging out until he can do so. Right. He leaves, goes through the uh, secret door somewhere in the house that descends into the tunnels uh, underneath the house. All very, you know, pat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But okay. Mm -hmm. I'm sure also that if we could see the house, it's probably a very large Victorian house just to keep going with everything. Oh, of course. You know Um, it. He, he his his number one man or his valet is probably named Barnabas if we were to see mm-hmm. him. Um, yeah, it's, it's probably like that house that destroyed itself in that one episode that we talked about. Um, I think it was uh, what last season. Yeah, one of the horror books. Yeah, the the house that had become conscious somehow, mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah, I bet it looked just like that. Uh, probably, yeah. Uh, so Rylock goes down into the caverns beneath the house, and he, he starts yelling for someone named Miklos. And as he's wandering around, he goes to another uh, cavern where you see all these kind of scientific uh, – all this equipment, but also on the wall are like some hieroglyphs or something like that, something mm-hmm. you know, maybe Sumerian or, or something. Um, and then Miklos shows up. Miklos is the name for the Minotaur. Uh, and apparently he can speak just fine. He has full mm-hmm. full vocal capabilities. Yep. He refers to this man as father. Um, and in the panel before, he uh, the scientist refers to Miklos as son. So we have the relationship up. Relationship. Mm-hmm. Relationship set up. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, no tag necessary for this show. No. Wow. Okay. Sorry, guys. It's the it's the Kool Aid I've been drinking. It's it's getting. Mm. I've been sipping on it all night. Um, the father sends the son out, saying, basically, you know what you need to do. You have to do that so that we can get the chemicals that I need to change you, to, either to to change you back or to fix you or or however you you want to look at it. You as the reader, I mean. Uh, next, we see that Miklos the Minotaur goes down to the village and starts terrorizing the village, although he doesn't seem to want to. He's not doing it on his own, per se. He's doing it at the command of his father, mm-hmm. and he dislikes having to follow that command. But being that it's his father, one, but also being that it will ultimately help cure him, too. He is going ahead and doing it against his better judgment, the uh, Miklosis. And to just to, to add to it, he gets shot and shrugs it off. Yes. By a double-barrel shotgun. In in the chest, full, full on. Yeah, yep. and it, it doesn't seem to slow him up. He uh, ends up charging right through the shooter, as a matter of fact. Yeah, I mean, he didn't even flinch or anything. So that, that, that should tell you, um, you know, a little bit more about what this dude is capable of taking a, a shot like that in the chest. He, he's going full beast mode. Yep. Uh, I wonder next, if that's a tea shop. No, it looks like a bar. What? What? I was wondering if it was a tea shop, but no, it looks more like a bar. If what is? Where he's at? The reference. Oh, 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 okay. I, I see what you're saying. Uh, yeah, I guess it's just the, the bar at, at the closest village. Mm, it would have been, a, I guess, too cliche had it been a, a tea shop. Uh, that that'd been too Victorian. Yeah. 
that we we're all, we are in the seventies after all. But yes, that's true. Know. Next in the story, we have um, the origin story of Miklos the Minotaur. Mm-hmm. His dad, Doctor Vrylak, was apparently an uh, archaeologist. It appears. Mm, yeah, explorer. Yeah, and and he came across uh, a chamber in somewhere in the far Aegean. Oh no, yeah, that's right. It says okay, yeah, it didn't the, spell the labyrinth a lot. of legend hidden here in the far Aegean, which is interesting because I thought the Aegean was a body of water. Uh, so did I. Uh, not on Crete. So he apparently found the maze of the Minotaur, not on Crete, but somewhere else in the Aegean, I guess, on another island somewhere. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, he stumbles into a room that has, very similar to what we saw in his cavern, uh, hieroglyphs or cuneiforms, or how, however you want to describe this kind of symbol Graham. writing. And he determines that it is uh, writings about chemistry that allowed the ancients to create a super race by combining the power of beasts with the mind of man. Mm -hmm. And it's all laid out how to do it, presumably, in these glyphs on the wall. Uh, He soon finds out that his son has an uncurable condition and is going to die from it. Using this information that he has found in the hidden Aegean area... He concocts, as we can see, some chemical serums and gives them to his son. It does restore his son to vitality, but it doesn't stop there. It continues to transform his son. Uh, we, we see uh, an in-between panel here of the son turning into, at least the head, a, a bullish, beastish kind of head, mm-hmm. presumably with the current result, which this may not be the end result, but the current result being Miklos that we have already been exposed to. So Mm. this uh, situation with his son turns out to be dad's fault, Uh, entirely dad's fault. Yep. Tony Stark, having spoken to Jasper Sitwell, has uh, gotten information from Jasper as to where Madame Mask's mask was found. Tony has decided to start his own investigation going to that locale. Uh, He does, pulls out his handy uh, briefcase that he always has with him, although now, rather than the armor being in the briefcase, which I think eventually it'll end up there, he is actually Mm -hmm. wearing it Yep, under his street clothes, which you would think that would show. But, okay. Um, Hmm. You know, I don't know. Maybe in the briefcase he had just his mask and the gauntlets, stuff that that have to be fleshy and and visible. And so he carried those in the briefcase. But he suits up and he flies off. Um, Next, we see Dr. Vrylock, who is at a pawn shop, pawning some things, taking the money, and then talking about spending the money on the chemicals he needs. Mm Mm-hmm. As he's wandering back through the town, uh, Dr. Vrylak, we see that Jasper is apparently also in the town and has seen him and is watching him expressly. Yep, he's tracked him down, figured out where the mask came from, 
And he's figuring, all right, well, let's keep following the trail back and see where that leads us. Right. So now he is trailing the doctor as the doctor presumably is going back home, having completed some business there in the town. Uh, We next see the doctor as he is working on a new batch of chemicals. This batch is what he's going to give to Whitney to, and I'm throwing up big quotes here, cure her. But we find out that that is not what it's going to do. According to the Mm -hmm. doctor, it will change Whitney into a minotaur-like beast like his son. And the doctor says Mm -hmm. that she will be the second of my race of minotaurs. Now, he says something else uh, even more interesting here a little bit later on. We cut to Tony. Tony's flying around trying to pick up any trail he can of Whitney. Uh, It's starting to get dusk. He's starting to need to recharge his uh, mythical capacitors, so it's a a, a double whammy of, well, I I need to wrap this up for the evening. But he sees in the distance a small village on the coast that apparently is having some sort of uh, problem. There's a a large, smoky fire. Mm Mm-hmm. Not figuring that the town can handle a fire of the size to generate that much smoke, Iron Man goes down to help. When he does, he runs into the Minotaur rampaging. Now, he had already rampaged once and returned to the cave where he spoke to his dad, and that's where we saw that his dad was going to turn change Madame Mask. So he must not have been happy and left to go pillage again. Mm-hmm. So he's destroying, not destroying, but just running roughshod through the village. Uh, there's a battle between he and Tony. Tony realizes that perhaps he's in over his head because this beast is stronger than he thought. But also, uh, as he said when he first got there, his suit is running out of juice because mm-hmm. he's been at it all day. Yep. He he tries a couple tricks. Uh, manages to get one over on the Minotaur that he thinks is sufficient, but the Minotaur, uh, the Minotaur, excuse me, wow, this is not my night for podcasting, guys. <laughs> uh, the Minotaur uh, gets him from behind, ragdolls him on the ground, mm-hmm. ragdolls him into a wall. Uh, it just, you know, I, I certainly think that any more than than what. Tony was able to take, and he probably just would have been like juice inside that armor. Oh, yeah, no kidding. I mean, he's he, just, he is really getting thrown around. And with so little effort on the part of Miklos. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's just – but like you said, which, of course, uh, us superhero aficionados realize that it's two different things – being invulnerable and being super strong. But a lot of times they're both associated as being the same thing. Mm-hmm. He's already been shown to be invulnerable. And so, of course, the the general consensus of opinion would be, well, that he's super strong also. But that's yep, a totally exactly. different power. But uh, the, the Minotaur Miklos has them both. So, yeah. Um, Tony, who was going to do something to put out the fire, uses that same technology that he had squirts it in the Minotaur's face, momentarily blinding him. 
escaping the most recent attack as he was about to, as the Minotaur was about to ragdoll him yet again, slips from the grasp and is thrown, fortunately, into one of the buildings that's on fire. Mm-hmm. Because, thanks to the armor's thermocouple, mm-hmm. the heat from the fire, Stark, or not Stark, the armor is able to convert into electrical current, so he's able to recharge his uh, mythical capacitors. And I say that because at the time that Iron Man first came out, the fact that he was capacitor-driven was this huge development. Mm-hmm. They they spoke of it, and they relied on it so much. For us today, capacitors are about as prevalent as plastic. Yeah, and so... Yeah, it's... It, yeah. You, I mean, you don't even mention that anything that uses electricity has capacitors because... It's the, a given. Yeah, it's like, of, of course it does, because, you know, what capacitors do. So, exactly. But here... You know, they they now they've kind of diminished relying on that now. I guess because the technology is becoming more and more commonplace in everyday life as the as the book is being written. But I, I remember in the early early appearances of him when he was in a anthology split book mm-hmm. that every time they mentioned his power, they worked in somehow that that particular power was capacitor driven. Ah, uh, yes, uh, it was like. Come on, guys. But okay. Here's the um, dead horse. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, as uh, Tony, he must kind of sit back in that fire to fully to fully charge, because the Minotaur manages to get away to the ocean and is swimming away. So I mean, he's he's getting way away from Tony by this point. Uh, we cut back to the. Doctor, the evil scientist at his house, he has brought Madame Mask this solution, telling her to drink it. It will, uh, it will help her. Whitney is is finally coming around all of the um, physical and psychological things that she's she's recently been through. She's finally coming out of that haze and starting to think on her own and starting to ask the questions that uh, a coherent person would ask at this point. Well, yeah. And she realizes that she really hasn't asked any questions up to this point. So she really doesn't know a whole lot about what's going on and starts asking those questions. Well, it, it's a little soon for the doctor because he is trying to get one over on her and he can't really say anything because then she'll know something's up. But by him kind of hedging and then forcefully telling her to, to do this, it will make you better, mm. she decides, well – you know, no, I don't think I am. Exactly. It's like, wait, no. no. Yeah. Like, like, she, like she says here, it's uh, it appears Dr. What was it? Vriolac? Vriolac, yeah. You've been withholding a great deal from me. And it's like, well, that's because you ain't asked no questions. Yeah, really. It's, I, I guess it's still, you know, it qualifies as a lie by omission. Uh, okay, but I mean, I, I, I don't, you know, I appreciate the fact that you believe that he saved you from some horrible beast. But then when somebody tells you, oh, and I'm a plastic surgeon and I can fix your face, and you're like, this is my luckiest day ever. Uh, yeah, really. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, no, <laughs> no. So she rebuffs him. 
and then he he tries to physically force her, but she is much more the superior in uh, hand to hand combat. Yeah, she flips him, dude. <laughs> yeah, and and does a does a elbow lock on him yep. too. And in the midst of this struggle, Miklos returns, sees that she is quote unquote attacking his dad. That's mm-hmm. that's what he sees when he comes in the room. Yep. He Miklos jumps to attack Whitney. But then from the outside uh, balcony window, mm-hmm. from the outs- from outside through the window, whatever, wherever it is in the house, whatever, Jasper Sitwell dives in, screaming for Whitney to look out for Miklos's attack, and he has a gun, too. So he's, he's full out to protect the, this woman that he cares for, who also happens to be a, a super criminal. I just I want to stop and, and take just a sec here for this page because this this particular page was actually probably my favorite entire page and sequence in the book. Okay. Um, because one because of the coloring, how they they shifted from the previous like full color right to, to now we've got a a dominant orange yellow red thing going on the the coloration uh, shadow light dark but. I really liked that instead of playing out and explaining the entirety of what's going on, yes. you're seeing flashes of action, reaction, action, reaction. So Miklos charges Whitney. She is, oh, my God, you know, cringing back. The old man's over here in the corner going, hey, 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 she's going to get it. And there's the agent bursting through the door, all like you said. But then – we see the next panel, boom, Miklos has Whitney. Next panel, boom, gun, which is a reaction to the taking. Next panel, boom, old man now has a candlestick, which is a reaction to the agent having a gun, which is the re- – and they just – they did this, and it was just, you know, then, boom, uh, something hits the, the man's hand with the candlestick. Boom, agent elbows um, old man. Boom. Agent goes for Miklos. Boom. Agent gets smacked on the head. Yeah, gets smashed by Miklos. Boom. <laughs> Agent is on the ground, and he and Miklos is, is carrying uh, the the woman out the door. And it was just, you know, I could just see Flash. You know, like if you were watching like a, an old uh, like noir movie, and they were using light to, you know. It, of, of, of fire light. Is yeah. what what it reminded me of. Like we were behind everything and off to the side of a large fireplace, and that is the only light in the room is what is coming from this fireplace as we're watching this occur. Yeah, and it, it almost feels like the the flashing of the different scenes is like how the fire would would uh, like flicker and light up different people at different points in time. Right, right. But I yeah. just I, I thought this was just a, such a smart way of of showing so much potential um, action in so few and not in like a lot of detailed small panels. No text. No, no text either. Which well, no, there no was sounds. No, there nothing. was there, there was the text in the in the top large panel but then for the right right yeah but then for the the eight small panels in the mid and lower section you're there you're right there was there was no 
that not even a gasp, not even a yell, not even a grunt, not even a thump, nothing. Right, right. no text at all. It and was just that was I. I just yeah, and I just I. I just remember thinking, that's pretty well done. Very noirish. Uh, if you had to try to, I think for me describe it as a whole. Yeah. All righty. Yeah, exactly. So after that, uh, we then flip back to our, um, I don't know at this time, full color, but I don't, eight, eight, four color or eight color? Maybe this is still four color time as far as the colors for comics. But anyways, full color. Um, the doctor is leading the way with Miklos carrying Whitney Frost thrown over one shoulder They've descended back into the uh, maze-ish caverns underneath the house. Now we have the appearance of Iron Man, who apparently followed whatever trail Miklos had left swimming, because Iron Man emerges from uh, water in a cavern, uh, uh, like an under, like a, a typical. Um, Cave ocean grotto cup. thing. Yeah, grotto. There, there's the word. And uh, no, he he didn't really uh, follow a trail. What he did is he said that uh, according to the villagers, they've been required to set adrift uh, unmanned boats carrying tribute, and then he calculated tide and current and got that area. So where where the boats would have ended up? Yeah, exactly. Okay, the tribute boats are the things that the professor had been gathering that we saw him pawn in the village. Yep, which is why Miklos went ravaging right. without any purpose, because they're basically blackmailing them. Well, in, in order to uh, deflect his anger, they he, he must demand tribute. Yeah. And so he has to reinforce that on occasion. Yeah, exactly. And the tribute that... Professor takes it, pawns it for money, and that, that's how uh, the professor, anyways, has been getting money to continue, quote-unquote, trying to cure Miklos, which mm -hmm. is questionable that that's what he's been doing now. Yeah. Um, Iron Man does a little Jimmy jockeying with his uh, armor, does, does a, a, a super sensitive hearing kind of thing, determines which direction to go in this maze-ish cavern. Then he uses his handy diamond edge drill detachment. Yes. Because he knows it's a maze, and he would have to follow the maze to this other point, and it would take forever, whereas with my diamond edge drill attachment, I could just go straight through the wall yep. of the cavern. And that's what he does. Uh, we don't know how far or anything. We just see him start, and then in the next panel, we see him bust through the wall into the room that the – Evil scientist, his son Miklos, and Whitney Frost strapped to a table are. Uh, the scientist has a syringe in his hand, by the way. Yes. He is once and for all going to force feed Whitney this serum that he's been working on. But before he can do that, Iron Man and Miklos collide. Massive collision. Mm -hmm. Much expended kinetic energy. 
Miklos is momentarily defeated. Iron Man turns his attention to the evil scientist, but no, Miklos is not stopped yet because he attacks Iron Man yet again from behind, taking him by surprise. With a big old headbutt, too, man. Yes. And by the shape that Iron Man is in, you know he's going to be very sore in the morning. Oh, God, yeah. This Yeah, this will be a rough one to get out of bed after. I mean, you know... It, Suit or not, no one bends backwards to that no. <laughs> uh, degree and says, ooh, that tickled. No matter what shape they're in, which uh -uh. Uh, he isn't even really in the best of shape. He doesn't keep his body up like, say, a Captain America would or, or right. Batman or anything like that. He truly is just a dude in armor. Yep. I mean, you know, maybe he does, you know, like some morning bike Maybe, yeah. Just to, you know, keep the chub down for the ladies. But, I mean, yeah, he, he doesn't hit the gym and, and do, you know, like triathlons. And yeah, no, no. Like that. He's like while, Elon Musk. In yeah, the yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, in, in the 70s, yeah. It's Elon. yeah. While they are fighting, the doctor uh, now has turned his attention to Whitney, and as he's about to inject her with this, uh, serum that he has come up with, we see the return of Jasper Sitwell now, who has recovered. Um, I don't know that he followed them, but he found them. Shoots the syringe out of the doctor's hand. So there's a face-off now between the doctor and Sitwell over the, um, the, the presence of Whitney, what, what will happen to her. Mm-hmm. During the battle, the cavern that they were in was damaged such that Iron Man now has to focus on keeping the cavern from collapsing. Yeah, he was thrown, basically, by that gargantuan headbutt into a supporting, what did he call it? Column. Okay, column, column. yeah. Uh, so he is holding up the cavern, telling <laughs> Jasper that, I, I can't help you, dog, because I'm trying to keep us all alive here. Yeah, it's like, I'd love to, but... I've got this. Uh, the doctor recognizes that Iron Man is is uh, occupied, tells Miklos, you know, come on, now's our chance. Let's get the girl and go. A little uh, uh, speech here by Sitwell, but while he's doing this, we see that Miklos comes up to him, shoves him aside seemingly to do what Father had told him to do. Yep. But instead, Miklos goes over, shoves Stark, Iron Man, out of the way, takes his place supporting the cavern and says, no, you take these humans and get out of here. I have been lied to by my father. It is up to me to make up for this. All of it's been a lie. Everything I've done in the villages, which I didn't like doing anyways, but – and my father – wasn't going to cure her. He was going to make another one. Now, earlier, and I meant to point this out, and I'm, I'm glossed over it, the doctor said out loud, I think at one point, that one of his hopes in turning Whitney into a minotaur was that she and Miklos could have all kinds of little minotaur babies. Mm -hmm. So not only, you know, he at first he was still being quasi-altruistic in making another creature like his son to help his son. Right. But then it became, well, no, actually, I've made my son, and now I'll make another, and they will make many more. Yep. 
I guess with the ultimate idea that uh, he would have the one minotaur to rule them all, the one to bind them, well, or something like that. Yeah, something like that. So uh, they're stra- the, the minotaur is straining, but he doesn't necessarily have the strength on top of the fact that what he's trying to hold up is like the entire cavern. So ultimately it's not hold upable. Mm-hmm. A portion of it's been destroyed. It comes down on him. They didn't help the doctor leave, but I guess the doctor also wanted to stay with Miklos in helps of persuading him to come on because mm-hmm. the doctor is still there when the cavern comes down on Miklos, uh, killing them both. But we don't know this ultimately because we don't see it. So it's always possible that Miklos will be back. Mm. Iron Man uh, surfaces. They escaped through the grotto, dove down into the water, and now he's popping back up all porpoise dolphin-like. Whitney in one hand, dragging Sitwell by the the collar in the other. Uh, They get up to the beach, and from somewhere, and I guess it must be on Sitwell's person, the mask of Madame Mask materializes. Iron Man gives it back to her because it's kind of her, it's her whoopee. Uh, she takes it, gives some kind of little little soliloquy here about she can't do other than be Madame Mask, and she trudges off down the beach with Iron Man standing here thinking to himself, uh, you must convince the toughest judge of all yourself. Convince mm-hmm. her of what she had just said in her soliloquy. And that's where this issue ends with the indication that next issue we will see the Submariner. Submariner! Yep. So, a, uh, a quasi-one-off, but I mean, there is much reference to previous relationships with Whitney and Sitwell and Tony Stark and Iron Man and Madame Mask and mm-hmm. you know so uh, not just a love triangle it's like a, a love octagon there <laughs> yep. you know something yeah um, okay uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, a parallelogram a parallelogram uh, yeah you know, slanted trapezoids not yeah. not like square but so what any any other thoughts other than what you've already said about this issue no, that's that's pretty much it. I well, other than the fact that it it was kind of too stereotypical for me, especially with the end where it's like the whole redeeming yourself to save that you know it's like couldn't you have just gotten away? Yeah, really. Just throw something different in the mix and like get away. And it, it's kind of disappointing because. Sitwell is an officer of the law. Tony Stark is a superhero, so he's a he's a self-anointed officer of the law. Mm. And both of them let this known super criminal go. Now, Jasper was unconscious, so he has kind of an excuse. Uh, but Tony, you know, it's like, well, she's not all bad, maybe just a little bad, and so Yeah, but they got history. So you go out and you make yourself good. It, yeah, I, I just thought, well, you know, try to bring her in and let her get one over on you in a page or two and get away. Mm-hmm. Showing that, well, 
you were soft and you were going to give her a chance, but she doesn't deserve the chance. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of thing. But no, she just gives this cute little speech and he lets her walk away. Mm -hmm. Thought, Tony, come on, man. Um, Okay. New folks on the show. Every book, Levi and I give a rating and the rating is a thumb up or down. Very simple. X or O, one or zero, red or green. Uh, that's a different show. I was going to say, mm, blue thumb. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> um, so for this issue twenty-four of Iron Man, Levi, what do you give it? Um, I'll give it uh, thumbs up. But like I said, the the ending and and just a lot of the story was just too stereotypical for me. But still, I mean, it wasn't bad. I didn't dislike it. So thumb up. Oh, right, right. Yeah, there there wasn't there. To say, you know, oh, pitch this one, What what's next to read? Uh, mm-hmm. so. Yeah. Speaking of which, next to read for us is Rawhide Kid issue 75. Now. Well, hold on. What do you give it? Oh, what do I give it? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I give it a thumbs up. I am a huge, huge fan of these kind of books that fill in the backstory of the Marvel Universe for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have known of Madame Mask for a while. Spoiler, spoiler, she even goes on ultimately in at the end of the 80s to be an Avenger. Ah, uh, yeah. Even. Had so, to happen. Yeah. So uh, so she has been around for a very, very long time. Uh, the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, Jasper Sitwell, he is still around now as a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. So seeing some of his early appearances, well, that fills in some kind of knowledge gaps as well. Um, so all of this, and, and I think that's probably one of the reasons I am most fond of the Bronze Age, because a lot of the Marvel Universe is really being fleshed out throughout the 70s. And so, uh, you know, the story, yeah, it was one issue. There was a lot of meme-ish, pat kind of places that it went. I mean, mm-hmm, yeah. You, you could read a page or two and pretty much have written most of the rest of the book, uh, you know. Okay. Um, the art was solid, but not necessarily what I would say is spectacular for artists that I see doing Marvel books in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're very right about that fight scene between Miklos, Iron Man, Sitwell, and the Evil Doctor – with the coloring and the way it was presented and everything, that was very different, very original. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that I think, certainly in the overall storytelling in this book would be a high point, that that page, nice setup, and then eight panels of no text action. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a thumbs up. Um, you know, not necessarily the strongest thumbs up I would give a no. Bronze Age book, but, you know, a thumbs up nonetheless, as, as there are only two options. So, all right. Um, issue 75 of Rawhide Kid nowadays would be an anniversary issue of some sort. Mm. For them, uh, it's just another issue, just <laughs> another book. Um, I don't know if the 50s were anniversary issues at this time, so maybe just hundreds, 100, 200, 300, so. Um, so it's just a, a, a standard book, not uh, giant size, super size, multiple stories, anything like that. Mm. This was written and drawn by Larry Lieber, inked by John Tartaglioni, 
lettered by Gene Izzo, and edited by Stan Lee. Now, off the top of my head, there's a connection between Stan Lee and Larry Lieber, and I believe they were blood relations. Mm-hmm. Unless, yeah, unless that's a sobriquet for Stan Lee, which I don't think it was. I think these were two actual peoples, and they were they were related. Um, so we open in the town of Stillwater, small, sleepy, and sheriffless. Mm-hmm. All kinds of alliteration there, all S's. Mm, yeah. We we have Ombre riding in, rides into town, hits on a young lady that's walking through town with her bow. Her bow is carrying a bunch of packages. So they've come into town, they've done some shopping, um, and he comes up and he's he's all um, dude bro on her. I guess as you, the kids would say nowadays. <laughs> and uh, it continues on as our page changes and we go to another panel, only now it's going on in the background. And in the foreground, we see Rawhide speaking to a uh, – not a furrier, a, a, a blacksmith, but I, I think those that shoe horses even had a, a more particular name, but it's not coming to mind. He's, his horse is having some shoe problems, and he's talking to the blacksmith about it. Uh, next panel, the perspective is shifted. We see Ombre that rode into town being all dude bro in the forefront mm. and Rawhide and the blacksmith in the background. So we see everything going on, but our perspective has changed, and so what we focus on changes between these two panels, which I thought was kind of cool. Um. Focusing in now for the next several panels on the gentleman trying to take up for her girl and the dude that just rode into town wanting to draw down on him. So he does anyways, even though the uh, gentleman, Frank, uh, says that he's not going to. Um, the outlaw draws and shoots him, and we see Frank does have a gun in his hand, so he must have pulled it, just winged him. He and his girlfriend, oh, Frank, you've been shot. Oh, I'm okay. I had to do something to defend your honor. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Back and forth. Um, bad guy reaches out to grasp her and, you know, basically, well, come along with me, little girl, and, you know, that kind of cowboy stuff. Mm-hmm. Finally, having seen all of this going on, Rawhide steps up, puts an end to it, um, challenges this dude to draw, and gives him the draw. He he tells the, the outlaw that I won't even draw until your gun is unholstered. Mm-hmm. I'm that fast. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, uh, he does manage to shoot the gun out of the outlaw's hand, holsters his weapon, and then walks up and gives him a, a five finger to the chin there, uh, and then actually tackles him uh, on top of that. Wrestles him to the ground, grabs him by the lapels, and you know does the threatening... Now, this is the way it's going to be. Uh, you can't talk to people that way in in one panel. Okay, but then in the next panel, they're both upright because Rawhide is punching him again. Mm-hmm. This time, he falls, stumbles, is thrown into a uh, trough, comes up soaking wet and, and, you know, is the bad guys, well, you got me this time, but mm-hmm. – but, I'll, I'll get you again next time, shaking his fist in the air, kind of. Yeah. Right? yeah. You better you better live with one eye open over your shoulder. 
Yeah, basically that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, next, we cut to the gang that this tough was the advance scout for. He rode into town to see what the situation was. All of this stuff happened, and so it delayed him getting back to the rest of the gang. And so now the gang is like, well, he's had enough time. So he must have found something. They they don't think, well, he must be in trouble. We need to go help him. Mm-hmm. They just think, well, he must have found something to get into, which must mean everything is okay. So we'll go on into town. Yeah. yeah you know, oh, he ain't back yet. He's probably, you know, found him somebody. Yeah. It's a, so they go on into town. They make themselves at home at the local bar. Also not a tea shop. Uh, no. And they they do ultimately hook up with uh, – let's see if they say his name and still no name, but the, the advanced scout dude, um, because he tells them that Rawhide Kid is in town. And while they're having their sit down at the bar, they discuss Rawhide a little bit, but nothing in depth. And then the story goes to the next day. Rawhide is leaving town. He got his shoe, his horse shoes fixed, and he's he's going on about his his stuff. Well, as he leaves, some of the gang members, including the leader, take off. Following him, they're going to circle around, and at some point, out, they're going to ambush him, kill him. That way, they don't have to worry about him. Uh, okay. the, the, the leader is okay. he is the one that's going to do it. All right, now let me just interject something. Okay. Once again, there's a shortcut. It seems that there was a shortcut to anywhere in the Old West. Right. There, there was always another way. Uh, there may have been another way, but there was always a shortcut. Wow. And and the bad guys and the good guys both always knew their own. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. Now, I, I lived in Arizona for eight years. Drove all over the southern part of the state, and I can tell you nothing is short about going places in Arizona. So all these shortcuts, I would have loved to have known back then. Okay, yeah. But it's just, you know, bottom last panel of this page, it's like, I know a shortcut, and I'm like, of course you do. Of course you do, yeah. (laughs) Of course you do, because... Obviously, the people in making the pass between point A and point B wanted to take the long way. Right. They didn't know at the time the shortcut. It must have been discovered later because they didn't use it. Right. Exactly. And still don't, apparently. No, no. It is not the accepted way. No. That's still the long way. The long way is the better way. Right. But there is a shortcut. Yes. Always. So the bad guys do take the shortcut. They set up. They're waiting for Rawhide. Leader dude's got a rifle. He must be some kind of bloody sharpshooter because mm-hmm. he manages to – he hits Rawhide. We don't know how or where per se, but we see that he's knocked off his horse. They see that he's knocked off his horse, and they leave him. They, they don't go to check on anything, to be sure of anything. They just leave him. So they – well, that – well, no, they do go down. I'm sorry. They go – because they go down and they get his, his, his guns, yeah. But, but what 
what happened was he went over like this steep hill. I mean, the 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 road or the path. Oh, is that how you look at all that? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. Okay, he, it, because like in the second panel there, he's basically rolling, and you look up to where the horse is at, which is where the path or road was, and then you've got the big cliffs where the bad guys were at. So what I'm figuring is they're like, oh, we shot him, he fell, he lost his guns, and the horse ran away. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're. It's you're one of those. It's, it's one of those. No one can survive that sort of thing. You know. Still yet, they're so concerned about him that they go out like this to kill him, and, and they don't make sure. Well, but I mean, it honestly, it could be one of those things where it'll take you know, like it'll take two days to circle around just to check. You know. I mean, I don't know, but it. I guess. But you can ask uh, my wife. In popular culture. Every time I'm the dude that says, look, you got to put them down in that situation so that there is no doubt. Mm-hmm. Oh, because, yeah. Because how many times have we seen, well, we didn't oh. get them all. Because, you know, yep. it's like, don't. Oh, I thought he was dead. No one. Yeah, exactly. No, no one, one that finds themselves in that situation ever learns. TV, movies, books, it, it no, doesn't matter. Yeah. It's like, come on. No, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna. I'm and I'm gonna be like, guys, give me like an hour. I just want to make sure. I'll bring you back his head. You're at war, in essence. I mean, if you get to that point mm-hmm. where you have to kill people, you're at war. And I would think at war, it would behoove you to make sure that your enemy is dead. To, to clear an area mm-hmm. is to clear an area. Mm-hmm. You know, but so. Uh, all that having been said, so yes, like like Levi said, they go down, the horse ran off, uh, they do see that Rawhide dropped both of his colts, and the leader that shot him picks him up and says, hey, you know, these will make really cool trophies because now not only can I claim to have shot Rawhide Kid, but obviously since I got his colts, I did. Yeah. So they're, they're his trophy that he'll be able to hang his outlaw hat on uh, and – as soon as he gets in town, he promptly does that. Yep. He starts using the gravitas as the man that killed Rawhide Kid to subjugate the town verbally. That's all that he has to do. Yep. We don't see them actually doing anything to the townspeople, just verbally threatening them. This gang takes over the town, uh, gets the town, all the townsfolk to... Give over their guns. Yeah, but at first they go to the best house in town and they kick the family out and take it over as their headquarters. Mm-hmm. They give all they get all the residents to give over their guns. Um, they, one, they one dude, a dude steals a yeah. horse. Yeah, he, they take one guy's horse. Yeah, who he may have just been like coming into town. Yeah, um, you know, so he he's a stranger. He doesn't know. Um. Some of the townsfolk start to talk amongst themselves, you know, that this isn't right. We've got to do something. They're overheard by the leader of the outlaw gang, and he he threatens them again, throwing out that, you know, you guys aren't going to stand a chance because I am the one that shot Rawhide Kid. Right. So after that last reference to Rawhide, we have to find out what's up with him. So we cut to Rawhide. And we see that his horse 
and unfortunately he's not named here, but he's nuzzling Rawhide to wake him up. Um, oddly enough, Rawhide here doesn't use his name either. But So he's not dead. Uh, he gets up. He's unsteady. He's been unconscious for days, he said. Lost a lot of blood, he says. So he's just in a bad way. Probably, and it's it's not shown like this, but I would imagine he barely manages to get on his horse if he does it all rather than just draping himself over the horse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the horse takes him to the nearest help, which turns out to be back to the town of Stillwater. Uh, he manages to do something with the horse. We don't know. Manages to stay upright enough to get and recognize the doctor's office, get there, ask for help, be taken in by the doctor before he finally collapses. So it's just through heroic effort that Rawhide Kid finds the help that he needs. Well, of course. Uh, The doctor does set about patching him up, as any Old West Sawbones is going to do. Mm Mm-hmm. In the midst of this, the doctor's daughter comes in, and so now there's a problem. It was one thing if the doctor knew, right? but now his daughter knows, so that puts her in danger. The doctor already knew he was in danger. They've got to hide Rawhide. We cut to Rawhide's horse, which, no, it's not just that he managed to do anything with the horse. He tied the horse up to a hitching post. Yep. The outlaws, actually, this is the outlaw leader, recognizes the horse. Yep. Um, I question how that's even possible, but he well, recognizes I mean, the horse. The horses are distinct. Their attack is distinct. From two or three hundred yards? Well, if he can that's... see well enough to shoot, he can see you well enough to identify uh-huh. the horse? Yeah, okay. All right, sure. <laughs> we'll, we'll go with that. Okay. Dude, it was meant for 10-year-olds. It was the infrared scope that he had on that rifle. Yeah, that, that magnifying scope. Yeah. So, But and, and, and just my wife just said they're just not pretending right. Yeah. That's that's what's going on. That's why I'm, I'm taking issue because they're yep. not pretending right. Um, so the leader uh, recognizes the horse. Uh, well, Rawhide's not dead. He's somewhere here in town, so now we got to find him. Let's see. He's... Probably messed up. His horse is here. Where could he be? Look around, look around. Doctor sign. I bet he's in there. Let's start there. Yeah, because, you know, that makes the most sense. So the doctor and his daughter have finished patching up Rawhide. They, they put him in a, not necessarily a secret room, but it's a room off to the side that they are then able to cover up with, you know, some furniture or some supplies, being that he's a doctor or whatnot. As soon as they finish, the outlaws bust into the office, search things uh, thoroughly because they leave, not having found anything. Okay, we now have to do something, the doctor thinks. You know, that was close enough as it is. We won't get through another one of those. So they go to Rawhide and tell him, you know, uh, I'm, I-, I helped you, dog, but you got to go. They know you're here. My daughter's in danger. You, you, shoot. Well, what it, what it is is the, the bad guys are like, no, we know you're hiding him. We're going to be back in an hour, and we're going to kill you. Mm. They threatened to burn the whole town down. Yeah, 
That's right. That's what they do. If if you don't give him over, and it's like, well, you just searched, and we don't have him. So. Yeah, and so that's that's why they go to uh, to uh, Rawhide, Rawhide, and are like, well, they're going to burn the town down, or we give you to them. Right. It's so kind of a no brainer. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Tough choice. You or the town. Bye, Rawhide. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Like, uh, but. Rawhide, being the upstanding hero that he is, is like, no, no, I understand completely. I need to leave because nothing can you know, happen to these other people because of me. That's just not right. Nothing good can come of this. Right. So he's, he's being heroic, which, of course, Rawhide Kid, though he may be misunderstood, he's not truly an outlaw. He is a knightly person. We cut to the gang. Uh, they're sitting in the bar. Some of them's drinking. Some of them's filling their gun with bullets. You know, you know doing what, that you, what you do before you burn down a, uh, a town. Getting Doing that gang getting ready for mayhem kind of stuff, you know. Yep. E- each man has his own thing. So Another guy's just sitting in the corner, showing. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Lean back. Yep. Back in his chair. Probably got his finger through a suspender. Yep. Just waiting. Um. In the midst of this, a plan that Rawhide concocted with the doctor and doctor's daughter comes about. There's an explosion in in the front door of the house that the gang has taken over. And when they go through the door, you know, to see who this was, they see dude running away. So someone has, uh, has bombed the front porch of their house. This is the fastest dude in town that Rawhide specifically asked for because he had something he wanted him to do. So this is this is part of some stuff that Rawhide has now set up to try to take care of the gang. So his plan has started. Mm-hmm. The bad guys take off after the runner, we'll say. Rawhide is watching. He sees all of them leave, his, leave the house. He goes into the house because he knows that the leader of the bad guys has his – Forearms, and he goes to retrieve. Mm-hmm. Sure enough, dude already has him mounted on the wall over yeah. the wall, of course. Rawhide gets him. The bad guys have all gathered because they've lost uh, the dude because he was such a fast runner. We see he is up on a house behind a chimney, just kind of hunkered down, waiting. Yeah, if you're going to hide, go, you know, go up. Yeah. Uh, Most people don't think, mm, we should check the roofs, too. Yeah, let's go up to the roofs and see if we can find him. Yeah. Uh, so they're there, and while they're uh, confabbing about what to do next, you know, Rawhide shows up, challenges them all. So we have the we have one panel that is kind of a, right? Yeah, kind of an odd panel, oddly shaped. Mm-hmm. Because it's got Rawhide mm-hmm. on the right-hand side about... 80% of the comic page, but then on the bottom, uh, bottom third of the page, it goes all the way across, and that's where we see all the members of the gang. So it's kind yeah, of a, a backwards L. Right. Shaped panel of Rawhide coming down and challenging the whole gang, of which there are five here that we see in this panel. And I think, <laughs> actually, I think that's been pretty consistent. I don't think there has ever been more than five in any, any mm-hmm. one shot. So. I really liked this panel, though, because they they put just a little bit of thought into the individuality of each of the characters, but most especially the big guy. 
Okay. And I, I, I don't know why, but that was just I, – I saw him, and I was like, ooh, he's cool. Because you get this wide – you can't even see his face, but you get this wide dude standing there. And, you know, you you just – you think back, and it's like, well, yeah, you'd have had to have muscle on the on the team. Right, right. You got the uh, tracker, bushwhacker, survivor of the French-Indian War dude mm-hmm, here, mm-hmm. right? And then you've got some cowboys. All of them pretty much their faces obscured mm-hmm. because the full moon – of course there's a full moon mm-hmm. – is to their back. Yep. Which means that Rawhide is completely illuminated mm-hmm. to them. Yep. They can see him completely. But when he looks at them, there's lots of shadows, including most of every face of the five guys. So, mm-hmm. he, and, and there's kind of wispy clouds, of course. you know, And uh, almost, if you stare at this panel too long, almost, you hear the Spaghetti Western whistle. Yep. You know, kind of. that. That's what's getting ready to happen. Yep. So let me flip through all the really crazy 70s ads here. And so, you know, Rawhide, being the hero that he is, being the good guy, gives them all a chance, tells them what he's going to do, tells them what they need to avoid what he's going to do. So he gives them a chance. Well, they don't take the opportunity. So Rawhide... Outguns them all. Mm. We see four of the men seemingly get shot. The way they're drawn, that certainly looks like what happened to them. Yeah, it does. Then the fifth guy, who is the leader, just has his pistol shot from his hand by Rawhide. Mm -hmm. Rawhide then walks up to him with the now what you're going to do kind of thing. Leader dude starts literally begging for his life. Rawhide then says, well, you know, no, got to be the bigger man, because if I do this, I'll be no different from you. Which I'd be like, that's okay, Rawhide. I I still got your back, dog. They got it coming. But he doesn't. Um, By this time, everything has quieted down enough that all the townspeople that are nearby are coming out to see what has happened because mm-hmm. there must have been some sort of resolution because the shooting stopped. Now, we never see any of the other gang members. So nope. I guess Rawhide did kill them all. Left the leader to suffer that now I'm going to kill you, you get to wait for it kind of thing, and then decides not to. Um. Let's see what he says here at the end. Uh, basically, Rawhide just is like, you know, that's it for me. I'm done. I need to chill out for like a month, recover. Uh, then I'll be pushing on to the next horizon, hoping to lose the past and to find a future. As he turns and walks into the setting moon. Yep. Or rising moon. Uh, well, no, because I think it was higher. When oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Facing the, yeah, so it's it's now it's got to be setting because it is lower on the horizon. Mm-hmm. And that is issue 75 of Marvel's Rawhide Kid. Yep. So what did you think? Uh, I really, really enjoyed it. I'm not sure why I enjoyed it so much, and I actually enjoyed it more than Iron Man. But it oh, just okay. – 
it it was that old country western movie thing so quintessential to so many childhoods you know what i mean that it just i i just i got done and i was like and even even the ending though cliche was like but that's how it should he shouldn't stay around he he should nope he's got to keep going recover somewhere in some adobe you know put together somewhere and then get moving you know did did you get almost a cinematic feel from yes i do like, if not a made-for-TV movie that mm-hmm. we would perhaps see now, an actual reel-to-reel that you would have gone out and seen in the day. Yeah, like, they were actually, you know, drawing this to be acted out. It's like, this is how we want it to look, and with the moon, we'll need the moon, and the, and the, we can put the clouds in, but we want the guy standing there and kid right there. and yeah. You know, yeah, I think maybe that's why I liked it so much because it didn't have the the booky feel; it had the movie feel. Exactly. Yeah, it it wasn't like you were just reading a comic book. Mm-hmm. It seemed bigger than that. Mm-hmm. You know, and yes, like you said, there there were a lot of pat, uh, yeah, I guess cliche if you want to use that word, kind of things. Okay, but you know, I mean. Definitely keep in mind this is a Western, and Westerns have been around by this time for 50 years. Yeah, I was going to say, well, you know, by our time, it's going on 100 years that uh, moving picture Westerns have been around. In prose, they may have been around even longer than that. Oh, well, they they were um, around longer than 50 years in the 70s, because if you think as – as far back as the 1800s? I guess they were doing dime novel restaur- uh, westerns. I was, was going to say dime novel, penny yeah, so, okay. novel of the of the people, the real-life people. You know, they would have eventually a uh, an author follow them, writing, you know, their tales and sending them back to, like, Boston. And Boston would be printing them up in papers or, or in novels. Right. That That's really how we know a lot about the Jameses and mm-hmm. the OK Corrals and all that kind of stuff. That's that's how the information started. But yeah, yeah, you're right. So we're, now we're sitting on well over a hundred years, upwards to 150, 175 years of the Western. So yeah, we we've seen them do everything yeah. <laughs> by now. Uh, even then, it was it was fairly old uh, as far as a a a, a, a meme or a, a genre. A genre, yeah. So. Uh, yeah, you're right. Okay, so that being said, I, it sounds like you're going to give it a thumbs up. Yeah, this one gets a, a, a much stronger thumbs up uh, from me than uh, Iron Man did. But uh, one really quick addition, um, another thing that I really liked about this was that they this story didn't actually feel pushed or chopped up and then squished together to make – a story that was this many pages long. It actually seemed to work. Okay, okay, I, I see what you're saying. Like you know, the the beginning flowed into the middle, flowed into the end, flowed into him walking into the moon. The the script had enough stuff for whatever we had twenty five pages, and mm-hmm. they used all of them. 
Yeah, and it 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 wasn't like wait, how did they get there? Yeah, right. Yeah, but it Which, it also wasn't like it feels like there should be more. Like was was he was he saying something? You know, so yeah. Which we have pointed out about shorter stories in other books, uh, other Western books in particular. Yeah, when they do like the, the three in one the yeah. story, it's like, wait, how how did you even that? That's not even logical. Like, how how do, how do you even know that? Yeah, and yeah, it, you went where you did? How did you get that? Where did that come from? Yeah, but yeah, you're right. This is definitely it. It felt a full story. Yeah. Um, I'll agree with you. I, I give it a thumbs up, and yes, uh, a, a stronger thumbs up uh, than Iron Man. Mm-hmm. I am very much a, uh, a superhero fan, but I do like solid other genre stories because of the uh, palate cleansing that they can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, I, I'm always a fan of something else that I enjoy just as much as a good superhero story because of the way it's done, that's not a superhero story. So, what rawhide kid is to a superhero? He's he's not a super. He's he's a he, he's a matinee at the Bijou character. Is what he is. He took on five men with guns. You do that, and he killed four of them, and disarmed the fifth one before he could even get a shot off. That's super in my book. <laughs> that's, that's, let's let's see the Flash do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like the Flash can move quickly, but I bet his aim sucks. No doubt. <laughs> um, okay, let's see. All right, um, guys, next time out, we are looking at talking about Sergeant Fury 77. Yep. And Silver Surfer 15. Yep, so we get some World War II action and yep. some superhero galactic whining. Yes. Well, well maybe not. Maybe. Oh, Maybe Silver Surfer is through that phase. I, I, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. And Sergeant Fury, Sergeant Fury is always an on or off kind of thing with me. Yeah, Sergeant Fury. It can either be one of those they were drinking when they wrote it, or man, they really were drinking when they wrote it. So, well, we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll see how that one turns out. Um, no feedback that I can think of. I checked all our normal channels, and the the only thing I do have to say is uh, thank you to the people that have been liking the show on Facebook. Yep, been seeing uh, that. That's cool. You are yeah, cool. We definitely appreciate that. You mystery likers. Um, now, if you want to get at us more directly, a variety of ways, you can tweet us at Marvel Bronze Age. On we, we love the tweeters. Yes, yes, we do. Uh, the email address, themarvelbronzeage at gmail.com. We love the emailers. The website is bigtimenoise.com slash marvelbronzeage. We do love company. And we have pages on Facebook and Google Plus under the tag, The Marvel Bronze Age. We do like followers and friends. So we haven't had a whole lot of action on Google Plus. So those of you mm-hmm. that are there, uh, you know, stick your heads up, throw your hand up, and, and let us know that you're out there. We, we'll see something occasionally, but that's pretty rare as like as as far as liking us there. Most of the action that we see comes from Facebook. Facebook, yeah. So, um, 
Now, we do, I, I do want to uh, throw out a couple thank yous to Professor Allen. Uh, he's pretty diligent about liking, reposting, sharing tweets and things like that for the Bronze Age. Mm-hmm. And also, I want to throw out a couple that I don't know if I've thrown out on this podcast, but uh, the name is Darren and Ruth Sutherland. They are friends of all of the shows that we are involved in. Um, They also are very diligent about liking, sharing, reposting, retweeting things. And both Professor Allen and the Sutherlands have their own shows. The Sutherlands have the Trucker Talk podcast. Ooh, Star Trek. Actually, you would think so, but it's not. Oh, well, then what is it? It's it's a character by the name of Mercy St. Clair. Her creator, writer, artist is Ron Randall. And the book that she's in, or the stories that have her in, are Trekker. Oh, okay. Because she is a bounty hunter. Sure, okay. She's a trigger. So, well, that sounds interesting. Uh, it's pretty good. Uh, they 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 only have like I think they just last week put up their tenth episode. They put out one a month, mm. uh, and these folks are very well spoken, professional sounding people to only have ten podcasts under their belt. I mean mm-hmm. it's it's really astounding the quality of the show, giving my impression of the experience that they have doing it. As far as I know, these are the only ten shows they've ever done. So mm. a, a very, very good quality show. Nice layout for the show. They they have contests almost every episode for something or other. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Um they they are very avid followers of most of the shows that we do uh, in Teal Productions, and and they have commented on most, if not all of them, somewhere. Uh, Professor Allen is the – his shows, he does, wow, three maybe or maybe four now under the relatively geeky network of shows. Mm all, all his are also comic book related. He has a Christian themed look at comic book show that he does, which is kind of unique in the uh, pantheon of comic book podcasts. Looking at them from that perspective, uh, he does a show where he focuses on books that he has gotten from quarter bins. So the only requirement for talking about a book on that show is that he paid. 25 cents or less for that issue that he's talking about. Oh, that's a cool idea. Uh, and and the books come from everywhere. Yeah. I mean, it could all be, companies, all time periods. It, it yeah, just, it's just whatever he picked up at the time. Right. Oh, that's such a cool idea. And as he's out and about at uh, comic conventions and stores and stuff, if he runs into a quarter bin, uh, he'll show what he got. You know, there will be a spread of books that he got as fodder for the Quarter Bin Podcast, here are the next bunch of possibilities kind yep. of thing. Um, and he does another show with his daughter. Uh, actually, he does he does two shows that are conceivably with his daughter. One definitely is, and the other show, any episode may have one or the other or both of them on. Mm, okay. So it just depends on what they wanted to talk about that particular episode. Mm-hmm. Um, 
almost every week there are enough shows coming out from the Relatively Geeky Network that at least one show is out a week. So there's always something Professor Allen-ish to listen to if you like the way that he does things. And he truly is a professor. Um, a university in Ohio, he teaches – oh, Professor Allen, I'm sorry. Uh, maybe – economics or or math, I want to say. And I know those sound like they're not related, but actually they are kind of related. So, I, I think that's what he teaches. I want to say business or economics, perhaps. But so uh, if you listen to his shows, you know, during the college season, he'll be talking every now and then about stuff. And then, uh, boy, he's glad it's over in the summer and he gets to take a break from that. Stuff. So you, you get stuff like that from him, too. Both very good shows to listen to, the Relatively Geeky Network shows and Trekker Talk. Thank you, both of those guys, folks, for supporting Teal Production stuff as much as you do. We greatly appreciate it. We do, yes. And I think with all that, I have uh, blown enough. So hmm. if there's anything else that you want to add? No. Okay. <laughs> so we will see you guys again, talk to you guys again. Actually, I, I, most of you we have never seen and probably will never see. Well, maybe not you, but uh, there are a couple out there. Well, actually, there are a lot that I keep a constant eye on because you never know what they're going to do. So, yeah, I'll see you. Right. Okay. Later. Well, there, there you go, guys. So now, now heads up. Um, about a month or so. We'll have another episode out. We're trying to do these once a month, maybe a little sooner, maybe a little later. We're kind of getting into all this holiday stuff now, so yeah, there is that. From now until you know, say the middle of January, anything definite is really tough to say. But mm -hmm. we'll do our best to come out with another show here within a month, sometime probably during the month of December. We'll put another episode out. Yeah. That's Either way, concept. Sergeant Fury seventy seven and Silver Surfer fifteen will be fodder for that episode. We will talk to you guys then. Ciao. The Marvel Bronze Age podcast is a Teal production, and as such is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, non-derivatives, 3.0 unported license. The song Super Freaks is provided and performed by the Hammerheads. <laughs>